hello and welcome to episode 171 of the 1099 for the week of October 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the lead game designer on the recently released Shadow of the Tomb Raider, a former senior game designer at Binox, and a man with a dozen years in the games industry, Heath Smith. Heath, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you, man? I'm doing fantastic. And uh, you know, this is there's been a run on the 1099 of developer-centric shows, and I've learned a lot. I just recently moved from media to development. And it's, I'm not saying these podcasts are selfish where I'm trying to pick people's brains to be like, how do games actually happen? But one of the main things I've learned from talking to everyone I've been fortunate enough to talk to is that what designers, what producers, what programmers and what artists do from team to team really is wildly different. Whether it's an indie team or in your case, a, a bigger team for something like Shadow of the Tomb Raider. So just to give people an idea, of what your role actually is in your case as a lead designer with this programming background. What role did you play on the game? <laughs> okay, I'll try. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so it's, diff it's also different uh, depending where you are in the world, I believe. Like the even the term designer uh, means different things in different countries in a way. So it's, I'll try. Um, so yeah, at Eidos Montreal, that's where we made Shadow of the Tomb Raider. So I was the lead game designer. Uh, actually didn't start out the lead game designer. Uh, started out as a senior game designer. And the other thing that makes it complicated is at the end of the project, I was one of two lead game designers. So that should should make you wow. more confused or more, <laughs> more clear. But basically, um, the way it works is by the end of the project was we had, there was two of us uh, and we shared the responsibilities. So we, we were lead, two lead game designers and then um, we worked with, designers so for example like you said senior designers to implement the game systems um, and so they separate game systems design and games level design in um, IDOS so what that means is so the people that create the maps and the the experiences they're level designers and the people that create the systems so that means all the ingredients the enemies the rules the traversal you know all of these all of these ingredients that the level designers use that's the systems design. So it's your AI and, you know, all of that stuff. So lead game designer basically is someone who manages designers to create designs based on the vision of the directors. Um, so that the game is what the fantasy that we're trying to create. Here's maybe a dumb question, but no, how please. does idea ownership work in terms of if you're leading this design team and everyone's essentially in a meeting room coming up with how does this specific in, uh, system work how does the crafting work how does uh, the instinct system work so you're trying to figure out what to make apparent in the environment what is better to kind of leave as more of a secret that people stumble upon i mean you have lead directly in the title so if if like if people are looking at that they might immediately assume like oh he's the person who has all these great design decisions and he's mm -hmm. the one who makes yeah. Lara Croft seems so cool and do all these amazing <laughs> things, but since it is this collaborative process, does the idea of ownership even matter? Well, actually, it's funny you say that because when I was younger and I dreamed about being a lead game designer, you know, like I thought, I thought it was like that. I thought, oh, you know, I can't wait to be a lead, and then I will, I will be my way or the highway. You know, <laughs> like you, <laughs> you, you think, you know, when you you first get into the industry, like, oh, when I'm a lead, you know, I'll know better than everyone and. I'll be able to come up with all the ideas because I'm so awesome or, or whatever. You know? But what you realize is very quickly, you know, after you get in the industry, that's actually almost the opposite for all the good reasons. So as you go up, the point is to let go 
of that yeah. uh, and empower the guys and girls that you work with, the designers, to like basically to inspire them and communicate the vision well enough that, and uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, but almost if, as if the game is making itself. Like mm. these people are so on board with the vision that they're coming up with the, the ideas for the systems and you're championing those ideas back to the directors and stuff. So that stuff gets in the game. Um, and obviously you're helping them create prototypes and what we call playbooks and all sorts of things and making sure that they're, you know, getting the level designers excited about it as well. But the idea is that if everything's working well as a lead, what you're doing more is management. You're doing less ide ideation or idea creation. That's the goal, actually. A good a good lead, you're sort of just, I mean, basically what you're doing is you're never at your desk. You're at everyone else's desk, <laughs> um, giving them feedback and just micro-steering at the best of times, just micro-steering like, hey, that's cool. Oh, have you thought about that? But overall, this could be a risk. You know, look out for that. Make sure um, it's not, you know, the system's not too complicated. You might need to scope it down, think about how it fits into the overall picture. Because basically as a lead, you you have a bigger overall picture of everything you don't you're not micro focused on one system for example let's say let's say an enemy archetype or one of lara's abilities or whatever if you're focused on one of those things you like the the benefit of that for the designers is that they can really deep dive deep dive in on it and talk to all the other departments and see how it fits with all of that stuff and make it as awesome as it can be but for you as a lead you can take a more um, holistic view of how the whole, all the systems are coming together, and say, "Oh, hang on, we might need to, you know, rebalance things." Um, your system is really awesome. Uh, for example, someone might be working on like a skill tree or something, but it's way too complicated, or it doesn't have enough of this type of skill because the game's moving in this direction now. So it's really being, it's being um, some, somewhat more like a, a mid-level view. Yeah. It's not as high level as a director who's like coming up with the high-level ideas of like. We want to make sure um, Lara Croft is instilling fear, the feeling of instilling fear into enemies in the jungle. You know, that's like a high level direction. And then as a lead, you take that and then you distill it down into, okay, we're going to need systems around these sorts of things in combat, in traversal, in puzzle. Okay, go away and propose me what could be cool. So you give the ownership to designers, but you're there for them to support them, help them refine their own ideas and champion it. That's really what a lead role is. So yeah, it's really the opposite of what you think <laughs> it is when you're younger and you're like, lead game designers, the person that makes all the shots, calls all the shots, makes all the calls, is the coolest dude or whatever. But no, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's almost ironically, when you come to that realization that it's not all about you, that's when you're ready to be a lead. <laughs> yeah, well, and I have two analogies based off what you said. So I remember when I started working in game design, I talked to people who were in lead roles and the way they kind of compared that too was very similar to what you said, but they were like, okay, NBA, you think of the all-star game and there's the coach and the coach is someone who's putting people in the correct places to succeed, but they're not actually taking the shots. They're not making the passes. They're not setting the screen. So they, they've done that. And a lot of times the best coaches are former players who have been in those situations, but you're really just helping the team and always talking and communicating. And that's kind of the way that that was working. But another thing is when we talk about idea ownership, I mm. talk about Mad Men too much, but I will continue to talk about it now. <laughs> there's, okay. there's scenes where there's people who are carrying around, like, here's sort of my portfolio. Here's the work I've done. Here's this ad 
that I put together, this campaign that I built up. In the case mm-hmm. of, let's say, Tomb Raider, if these are all kind of shared ideas, let's say if some if I was trying to hire someone for a new studio, mm-hmm. are there mm-hmm. there's certain aspects of a game where you can be like, I designed the um, the hunting system or the loot system or the the crafting system in Tomb Raider as a designer, and it's in my portfolio, or is that a shared experience? Yeah, see, that's more down to the guys and girls that are doing the actual design. Like, I would say they own those systems, you know. Um, whereas for me, I'm more on the management side. Although occasionally what will happen is due to just time and, you know, staffing <laughs> reality. Yeah. So, you know, things will come along where you're like, oh, okay, um, this guy and this girl, you know, they're overloaded. They've got enough on their plate, basically, right? And they they still need to bring home, let's say, the Jaguar or the whatever it might be, right? The yeah. underwater or something like for this milestone. And now, you know, the directorial team has said we need to add in this feature or something around this. So rather than overload them as a lead, sometimes you'll take one thing off their plate. Like a, some, you'll bat away something and you'll take it because you know, okay, I've had experience in that before and it doesn't really fit into anyone's bucket without stressing them out. So I'll take that and I'll do that. So there's a couple of little situations here and there where I did that during the development, but most of the time it was communicating the sort of vision and uh, stuff to the guys and they own it. Uh, whereas on the on Rise, actually, uh, it was different for me because I worked on Rise of the Tomb Raider. So Rise of the Tomb Raider, I was the, all the systems design was done at Crystal um, mm. and Montreal was the studio that was assisting them Whereas uh, this time around on Shadow, it was the opposite way. It was Eidos was the head studio doing all the systems and Crystal was assisting. So when they're, you're the assisting studio, it's not like, I guess some people would assume it's like, oh, you do the side stuff. It's not like that at all. Um, although you do do some side stuff, but it's more you do content. So for example, um, you know, the game has 12 major levels or I think we call them beats in the game um and say four of those were done in montreal uh for rise of the tomb raider and it was the reverse you know for shadow and that's just because you when you when you don't have to handle the systems you can focus on the content and often that can be really interesting as well that you're more in a level design capacity so on rise i was doing challenge tombs and i had a you know I, i didn't have a team but we were a team myself and there was a technical designer, there was a puzzle guy, there was a concept artist, there was a you know, a level artist, and we were like a tomb team and we did tombs. That's what we did. And so that that was a bit easier to you know say to your dad or like, <laughs> hey, hey, I did that tomb, you know, because you can say I came up with a puzzle or something like that. Or or did you like that? That was me. You know, I, I came up with that idea to have a ship or something, whatever it is. But it's much harder <laughs> to yeah, sort of say that uh, when you're a lead designer, because if you're doing your job right. You can't say it. <laughs> In a way, you can just point to awesome people and say, "Well, yeah, I, contextualizing I that for people is hard." Yeah. You're like, "What did you? <laughs> what part of the game did you do?" And yeah. you kind of just wave your arms around the entire thing, <laughs> like a little bit of everything, I think. Yeah. Well, it's like okay. So to get specific on this one, um, the role split eventually was um, there was one guy, Michel Leduc Saint Arnaud, who's very talented also, who I worked with during the project very closely. And he looked after what we call three C's and combat. So if you know three C's in industry term just means, uh, camera controls character, I think. Um, Mm. so that's all your traversal. So, 
uh, and then combat is combat. So that's the AI and uh, you know weapons and stuff. And then I basically had everything else. <laughs> so like the <laughs> hunting and the crafting and the upgrades. So more like the I guess, I guess you would say the meta game, all the stuff that exists around that that drives you, like that drives you forward in the game progresses you it's a lot of like things like traps and as i said like upgrades and like collectibles and all that's quite a large chunk that's why we ended up splitting the role is because when you know if you're trying to do look over everything that's really the job of a director and when you get down to that lead level you're sort of you're not hands-on like you're not doing it in the engine but you're more hands-on because as i said you're never at your desk you're just running around giving feedback so so that right. was a really enjoyable experience working with him. And you'll see in the credits, we, uh, both of our names are there under lead game designer. And that's because like these roles are intense. It's a lot of stuff to make sure it's coming through in quality and that the level designers are, you know know about it. They want to use it. <laughs> People like say they're using it correctly, but no, they, they, they want to use it. <laughs> they should, you, you know, you're like giving them these things and not saying like, eat it. He's like, come on, this is so cool. <laughs> hey, look, I made you a playbook where you can see all the ex- examples of how it can be cool. Well, I didn't make it. That's the point. The guys and girls made it, the designers. But look, we're, you know, we're, um, we've got this feature, piranhas or mori eels or mud or whatever it might be, and you can use it. It's really cool, and you can use it in these ways. So. Yeah, and creating a game at this scale is inherently stressful in a lot of ways, no matter how talented the team is, no matter how many lead designers you might have, mm-hmm. how many lead roles kind of organizing everything. Mm-hmm. But even more big picture, is there a greater pressure at carrying on the Tomb Raider name where you're now attaching yourself to a franchise that has this established fan base that might be you know, expecting something very specific? I would assume this is a real weird poll, but Metroid Other M way back from Team Ninja ah. when they're suddenly being like, we're making an entirely different thing. And it's going to be attached to this franchise that you love. And no matter what, even if it's a 10 out of 10 quality game, people already have their suspicions. Like, wait, she's not supposed to talk. What are you talking about? That's a huge Uh, change. So did you run into certain aspects of pressure in terms of carrying on Tomb Raider and Lara Croft? Uh, Look, I think most of the pressure for us came internally uh, in that a lot of us worked on Rise. So we're good friends with the guys at Crystal and they set such a high bar, you know, we're just trying to live up to it in a way. Um, you know, uh, but at the same time, we, when we worked on the last one, um, you always have ideas about things you might want to, where you want to take it next if you got the opportunity. So when we got that opportunity, we we're like, woohoo, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, but yay, but oh, it's like that scene in Futurama, you know, where they're smiling and they're frowning and they're smiling and they're frowning. I don't know if you know what <laughs> I'm talking about. But um, so yeah, there's like from the small things to the big things, you know, uh, when we when we finished Rise and we had the opportunity to say, okay, you're doing the next one and, it, you know, it's going to be set in the jungle. That was the direction. We're like, first of all, awesome, because that's colorful and brings a lot of extra palette to the screen rather than the snow. Um, and the water's not frozen anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty she important. Can, she can swim in it for more than two seconds. So, but like, you know, we have ideas from the large scale things, like, for example, or medium scale things, like the combat in Rise was really, really cool. But you didn't, she didn't really need in that game to disappear. Like she was always like, okay, I'm going to craft stuff and throw it and blow people up. It's going to be awesome. Um, but we knew as soon as we were going to the jungle, like, okay, well, let's let's complete the stealth loop. 
this is a, it sounds like a small thing, but it's actually a big thing. And so the pressure came from us, like, how do we make the combat feel fresh? Because the combat was really solid at the end of Rise. And that's the same for Traversal and for Puzzle. How do you bring something fresh to it, and for the, especially for the third game, when these games are so solid? And you know you're building you're building on such a solid foundation. It's your blessing and your curse, right? Yeah. <laughs> so and, and everything's been so nicely done at Crystal, and we've been witness to that when we're working on Rise and seeing these features come through, like the grapple axe and all of these things. Like, how do you bring something fresh to that? So um, you know, there's big things like okay, let's bring full stealth loop so you can disappear again, which makes sense because she's growing up through the franchise, and this is a more tactical way of approaching a situation like striking and disappearing and it perfectly fits with the jungle fantasy of being like a predator you know um all the imagery of rambo and predator and all that stuff like that's definitely that fantasy and then there's even small things like i remember on rise um you know doing some work on uh collectibles and they had a monolith system that they developed which was super awesome because it was representing her intellectual skill the fact that she, that she learns languages and then you would skill up your language and be able to translate the monolith and i remember loving that and but at the same time thinking oh if we had the chance on the next game it would be so cool if and so this is a very small change but I'm not, have you played the game yet yes yeah, so you might notice that this time around, when you translate the monolith, that's not the end of the story. You don't just go pick up your gold. You actually have a little riddle. Exactly, yeah. And so that smart. was... Yeah, well, it was just more like the logical next step for us to think, okay, well, that would be super cool because it shows she's getting more intellectual, she's progressing. And also, in a way, like as she grows up, the audience that played the first game grows up and wants a bigger challenge you know, and wants something closer to... Without going all the all the way because we'll, ne- we'll never be it's never going to be classic tomb raider because then you just boot up the old game right <laughs> but yeah. it's going to be a, a you know a reinterpretation or a reimagining of that and those games were a lot more puzzle based and a lot more intellectual based and things like riddles and harder puzzles and stuff were just par for the course in the old tomb raider so it was like even being able to bring a little thing like that to a system as solid as the monoliths and the translation the language system these are all ideas that you have so the pressure comes from like not one two 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 sides not wanting to mess up like this beautiful foundation that you've been given you know and then at the same time make sure the audience doesn't say oh this just feels like a dlc for um rise in the jungle you don't want that so you want to make sure that like you're sort of keeping the sacred cows but like i don't know uh giving some no, putting pressure on yourself to to bring something new that has to be just such a weird balance, though, because you're <laughs> right in terms of the. It's and I'm not going to sit here and try to compare Tomb Raider to Uncharted, but hear me out. Like when you go from like Uncharted two to Uncharted three, it's like, do you really need to do much to the combat? Same way when right. you go from Rise to Shadow, where it's like the the combat's it's good. It's like it's really great. So at that point, when you're making changes, there is this idea of I want to keep things fresh, but there might yeah. also just be the feeling of well, we have to change it, right? Like you have to do something on the next game where people are going to think like, oh, well, this is just, you know, rise to two point, like, you know, 1.5 or something like that. Like yeah. it's not all the way next. And like, I'll admit that as if I'm playing um, Overwatch, for example, which I've played mm. too much of in my life, if they're mm. making changes to core characters, even if they're mm. smart and interesting, mm. I'm like, no, mm. but it was already good. You don't need to change it. So <laughs> were there a lot of moments where you're just like, instead of changing things you left it or were there also moments where you felt compelled like you had to do something so that people saw the evolution of it yeah i I mean i think a lot of the like both narratively and gameplay wise a lot of it came from the momentum of what was happening in rise so you know um 
she could swim, but she could only swim for a couple of seconds because everything was frozen. So we naturally said, okay, also looking back at classic Tomb Raider, um, what's one of the iconic pillars? And that's the underwater. We'd never really explored that in this trilogy. So we said, okay, we have to bring that back. That's for sure. It's a huge player fantasy and it fits perfectly with the Amazon jungle because this, you know, we're taking her to the Amazon where everything's trying to kill her and we can even have the underwater be a fresh feeling because it'll be deadly and she'll be running out of oxygen and there'll be predators and things like that. So, you know, there'll still be treasures to find and stuff, but we were confident that that would give it a unique, hopefully, you know, people feel it gives it a unique feeling um, because underwater has been done in a lot of games, but underwater is usually this sort of placid experience yeah. um, where you're swimming around because you don't want to make it too stressful because you've got a 360 degree movement and you don't want to be fighting with the controls, right? So, so we thought, well, if we have underwater as an experience, as a more this like claustrophobic, visceral, fearful experience, it fits in with the tone of the game, which is about you know dark jungles, fear, all this stuff, um, but claustrophobia um but also it just uh brings something entirely new in terms of the moveset swimming um and that was interesting as well because you know you think about as a game designer your mind immediately goes what's combat underwater and then of course you brainstorm all these crazy ideas about i think they even did some in underworld you know she had like a spear gun and she could like shoot her gun underwater you know uh but then you think well that's not really right for the tone you know, all these things are technically possible, but then you you wouldn't have that experience underwater because then you'd start to feel in control, like you do when you're above the water on the ground and you you're owning the enemy. You know, in this jungle predator fantasy, but when you get underwater, you, if you want to have a different experience, so the player emotionally has a different experience in different parts of the game, so they have moments where they feel empowered when it's stealth combat, and she feels like a badass in the jungle, and then they get into the water and she. It's not that she feels powerless, but it changes the challenge and it changes the emotion. And it's just, we're always thinking about that. Really, it's really important to make sure that we, you mix up the emotion the player's feeling in the game. Otherwise, it flatlines. And then people just don't, they just don't want to keep playing it because they're just having the same experience over and over again. Either they're owning everything all the time. You, you don't <laughs> want that. And by the same token, you don't want to be completely, um, you know, bashed all the time the yeah game. and i mean if we're being honest no one's ever been like man my favorite part of this video game is the underwater level so being able to pull that off well <laughs> is difficult and this is not me blowing smoke up your ass this is something I was, <laughs> as I was playing where what it does do is instead of like you mentioned going underwater and suddenly being like all right now this is like every other aspect of the game but yeah. the movement's weird and yeah. you're slower and it's not as now fun. I'm floaty and yeah I don't know where controls I am don't work and, anymore yeah. you have weird water arrows i don't know what's going on like in that it felt <laughs> yeah. much more like exactly water as, arrows exactly as yeah. a narrative or puzzle device or as a changing the feeling suddenly you've changed the the pacing of what you're doing and you've also changed how the game functions in that way and pacing is something that i would assume is difficult to get right in the game that has these big blockbuster popcorn movie moments but also has these kind of more quiet puzzle areas and these underwater zones that might make you feel claustrophobic and of course again you're not making the entire game from the ground up by yourself but as someone who's been in all these meetings do you have an ideal balance in your head and the team's head between platforming puzzle solving and combat was there sort of a, a scale you were trying to balance throughout yeah, there was actually. I'll come back to that because you just reminded me of something. It's that when we when we put the like a, a very soon after we we put the first underwater experience in and we got the first audio treatment. I'll come back to that. Sorry, I just wanted to. Mention. No, you're fine. 
um, it was funny because we didn't anticipate what it did bring, which was this sort of stillness. So because, uh, you know, above ground in the jungle, it's noisy as hell. There's birds everywhere. There's monkeys, you know, um, it was really lush. And then as soon as you dive in the water, it sort of gave you this stillness. And I've seen that commented on in a couple of reviews and we're really like happy to see that because it was something that we thought, oh, wow, we didn't think about that, that it would give you that stillness. And it almost, you know, that sense of isolation that people always reference as something that was one of the best parts of the original games. Yeah. You know, that Tomb Raider was all about isolation. Of course, we're very aware of that, you know, and we have to make sure that she's not with companions the entire game because it's a Tomb Raider game and it's core to her being by herself and surviving these situations by herself. But just going into the water and going from the like cacophony of the jungle and then or if, let's say you're in a combat and then you dive into the water and you hear and it just it just <laughs> it just uh flatlines out the sound it's amazing like that even just that changed up the feeling of the game so that was something really cool and then our audio director worked with um uh gosh i don't want to say his name wrong but um he's the guy that did the sound design for inside mm. uh which he's amazing. I think it's Johan. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll Google it while you're talking. Please. <laughs> but um, he uh, he killed it. Yeah. Like he. So we have that sound treatment when you go underwater of like this sort of unsettling, uh, you know, oral treatment, um, and that that's really cool. That brought a whole. I think that added the little bit of um, icing on the cake to make underwater feel different because normally underwater doesn't have this like vague threatening feeling. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then also just the artists are so good at creating these like organic environments above ground. And when we gave them the underwater palette, they just went nuts and they did all these beautiful seaweeds and everything. So on top of that, and then, you know, having to, we've got amazing lighters. At, I, I think uh, at IDOS, like I really, really blown away by what the lighting team was able to do with this game and how gorgeous it looks. And then on top of that, like the lighting for underwater is so well done that you, you'd, rarely disoriented because the lighting tells you where to go and that's that was something that was really difficult because underwater you know you have this chaos and you have all these jagged shapes because you want everything to feel threatening and disturbing but you want the player to go there as well <laughs> you want to say hey look that spiky hole that no one would want to go in that looks like the more eel lives in there has a party that's where we want you to go so yeah you're just, a badass you should be yeah, going a, in here. Like, <laughs> that should be your the job also yeah, was right. it martin stig anderson who was the sound that was him I boom think, yes Yes, I don't know where I got your hands from. That's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, like you know, how do you make the player want to go towards the dark, craggy hole with spikes all over it? So that was a huge challenge, and that they, I thought they did really well. Um, now to come back to your point um, about the balance, yeah, I mean, from day one, I remember very maybe day two, but I remember very very early meetings where um, you know everyone's figuring out the story and. We have what's called a blueprint where we lay out <clears throat> the major, like usually there's 12. Hey, maybe someone can figure out what the 12 beats are. <laughs> but um, there's, you know, these 12 beats of the game and you want, so you, you do that really, really early on. Well, I didn't do it, but, you know, it's done by the whole director's group to make sure that there is a balance. And one thing early on that our creative director, Dan, um, wanted to do was he said he wanted to make the most balanced Tomb Raider Ever. And what he meant by that is because I remember him, I remember working on Rise with him. And, you know, there are three main pillars in Tomb Raider, right? There's your combat, there's your traversal, and there's what we call 
Um, actually, I'll, I'll give you the industry insider term for it. Ego is an acronym. So behind the scenes. So it's SRL. Can you can you guess what it means? Oh God, SRL. <laughs> can you give me the first one, and then maybe that'll help me figure out the rest? Yeah, sure. Smart. Oh no, I'm totally out at this point. I have no idea. You might be able to guess the last letter. Mm. Mm. I feel like I'm in a, like a college quiz again, where like I'm getting called on, and like <laughs> the person t- to- like totally realized like, oh, he didn't do the homework last night, and he's not no, going to no, raise no. his hand. But I'm going to. I'll force put you him. out of your misery. Um, <laughs> so SRL, it's smart and resourceful, Lara. Oh wow! How did I not get yeah. that last one? Oh, okay. <laughs> so what's interesting about that is it it's basically puzzle. But what's in, it encompasses crafting, it encompasses a lot of things like the language and stuff. Um, so what what it's saying is it's more than just puzzle. Puzzle is when the player feels intelligent, and and that's what this pillar of the game means. So it's yeah. combat, traversal, and then well, you can say puzzle, but we call it SRL because it's more than just pushing blocks and switch, flipping switches in the room, right? So, and also it very much speaks to the way we do puzzles in the reboot trilogy, which is physics-based puzzles that everyone can understand the elements of it without needing to do um, uh, more like uh, cameras divorced from the action, showing the button flipped in the other room and all that stuff. Like it's easily understandable principles, um, you know, and then the puzzle comes from the problem, not the understanding what the hell's going on in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So... So yeah, those three pillars early on, Dan was very adamant. It's like this game will be the game where they're the most balanced, as in the playtime for each one is more equal than either of the previous two games. And that was important to us. Like Tomb Raider 2013, I think it was important. I didn't work on that game, but I've heard it was important for the development team to show that Tomb Raider was back and that it was an action survival survival action game. That's what they called it. So it had a more action bent. And plus they had to set up all the world all the mechanics all the everything so there was a lot there was a lot of combat in that game because it was a, it was very much like setting everything up right and that was also a survival experience that very much she was surviving this onslaught of of challenges um and she wasn't yet a tomb raider in that game so she wasn't like puzzling her way out of things as much she was more getting into herself into these situations and surviving um, and so the arc was that throughout the games, by the third game, she, it would be more like an equal balance. So that was our big challenge. So Rise definitely brought Tombs back in a big way. And, you know, we were part of that in Montreal and we, we saw that happen. You know, we worked on that. Um, but still, there was still, um, I wouldn't say uh, a lot of combat, but there was still quite a lot of, you know, there was an introduction of you know, uh, crafting in combat, all of that stuff. So for us, it was like, okay, how do we do it and so one thing we didn't want to do is necessarily have less combat but we wanted to have combat that felt more like a puzzle yeah so that's where the stealth comes into it and it perfectly fits in with the the setting the jungle setting because it's somewhere where that if you really were stuck in the jungle with a paramilitary organization (laughs) you would have to pretty much go feral and cover yourself in mud and disappear and strike and act like that to survive because otherwise you would just get torn to shreds right um but uh yeah that was very early on decided that we needed to balance it so the idea was instead of having less combat we do more puzzle more traversal and the combat is a little bit more intellectual more puzzly and that would give a feeling to players that like she's now pretty much becoming tomb raider because the old tomb raider games were like the original tomb raider games were almost exclusively 
puzzle and traversal. There was very little combat. If you play that first Tomb Raider, there's like a couple of wolves and a bear, you know, and that's it. Yeah. So, so we, we didn't want to go all the way back to that, obviously, because you set an expectation from the first game when people buy Tomb Raider that looks like this with that font, you know, and that Lara on the front, there's going to be fighting and there's still going to be fighting, but we wanted to um, not so much scale it down, but scale up the other pillars. Plus we had a, we, we knew, sorry to go on a bit, but no, you're fine. something that was new in the, even in the blueprint stage is we knew we wanted to bring we we had the we had the idea that it's in the it's in the Amazon jungle. She's going to find a lost city, and it's not it's going to actually be full of people, which is something brand new for the franchise. Whereas normally she gets to Katesh, you know, in Rise of the Tomb Raider, and it's all dead, and there's just like zombie knights. So we you know we knew early on the reason for that was this is her emotional arc is she's growing up. It's a coming of age story, and while she's become really really powerful. Um, you know, she's become really, really capable and powerful and driven. Um, she hasn't got the emotional maturity, you know, you know? like she, she's sort of um, survived. She's so good at surviving now. She's attracted going out, <laughs> finding these situations to get into. But she, if she wants to become a responsible, well-rounded human being, i.e. Tomb Raider, <laughs> that's able to go, go to a culture and be like, okay, um, what am I going to do here? Am I going to just blow everything up and... I think, you know, you see early on in the game, she takes the dagger, everything falls down. That's the usual half of the course with Lara. Like the joke, the running joke, I think, yeah. about Lara Croft is she goes into the tomb and it all collapses as she runs out. So, and she d literally does that at the start of this game on a small scale. And then she does it on a massive scale where the entire town collapses. And that's the time where she realizes, okay, I can't keep doing this. One, for myself as a human being, like, but two, because it's not responsible. You know, I'm not, being the tomb this is the lesson she has to learn in this game so to do that we wanted to have an actual social experience which was a huge challenge um it was helped by the fact that you know we're idos i'm working at idos montreal there's a lot of um people experienced with deus ex and games like that would have a social experience there so jason dozwire our narrative director you know he's worked on uh deus ex as well so it was something that we knew we could bring that was fresh, but also something that felt like the next logical next step for her. So what was interesting when we were balancing these pillars, we had this new thing of social and we're like, well, how does that fit into it? So we saw that as more of a puzzle style thing. And then we started to think, well, what's a puzzle with social as well? So you'll see a couple of times, more than a couple of times in the game, you're on a side mission. And then you sort of have these like icons above the heads of the, NPCs and there's like little gear icons and things and it's almost like they are puzzle pieces yeah and then <laughs> and then you have to understand their wants and needs to be able to to solve the puzzle so that was something early on we knew we wanted to do so when we did this huge blueprint and we laid out the idea was to give a more balanced experience the danger is always to have it flatline at some point and so the big challenge we faced is we knew this was a story about Lara Croft slowing down um, you know, at some point in the game, going through a very intense opening and then slowing down and realizing that this, you know, she needs to sort of stop and listen to people and, and listen to the culture and all that stuff um, before barging in and taking the dagger and having everything fall down. So we knew we wanted that moment where she finds this hidden city around the middle, like one third to the middle of the way in the game. So the big challenge for us was how do we keep the pacing while at the same time, you want the player to feel like they're slowing down, 
um, because we want the player to feel and empathize with Lara and what she's going through and what she has to learn. So that was the that was the biggest challenge I think we faced on the on the game was how to normally when you get to a place like that in a Tomb Raider or any other game, you'd be there for about five minutes and then the enemy would burst through in helicopters. Yeah, and they'd and they'd be like, "We found her. We're hot <laughs> on her trail." And then there'd be tons of fighting and or you'd be fighting people within that place. But we didn't. The whole point of this game was to show that she's respecting the culture. She's not machine gunning people in the middle of the market, you know? Yeah, and I think it works really well. And I think what also works really well is uh, actually you mentioned before the people with little like gears over their head. And I think it's good that you have like, hey, I know Tomb Raider games are not about like a whole bunch of side quests and talking to people. But guess what? You could talk to these people and there's like quote unquote value to it. There's like it's worth actually having these interactions. And we talking just before about kind of challenges as you're making something like this and you mentioned that underwater there'd be certain like light would be illuminating certain areas that you should be going to and that was difficult and i would assume something else that's pretty difficult is i think it's the instinct vision that she kind of has going on where you click in the stick and suddenly everything that is collectible or interactable kind of glows and that's something that people point to like the arkham games or even um, metal gear solid 4 had like a at a vision mode like this and for me and here's what i so i've been i as i'm playing through this game i'm a perfectionist is my problem with games where i'm trying to collect everything i'm trying to min max things so the main issue i've had is i keep clicking that over and over and over because i'm like i what if there's like one arrow in the corner that i still need to get that i wouldn't see otherwise and i do think you you guys you know everyone your team does a smart job of highlighting areas where you're like oh this is where you need to grab on the ledge or here's where this thing is but how long did it take for you to find the perfect balance between kind of letting people into this world and discovering themselves but also giving them this ability that's to a certain extent unlimited it doesn't like last that long but giving them ability that kind of highlights and says if you really just want to know where stuff is here it is well it's interesting because we sort of inherited that from the first two games and we didn't want to get rid of it because it's part of the franchise, it's part of the character. Did that ever come that up? Though? Did the idea of ever getting rid of it come up? Um, not really. I mean, it was more, uh, yeah. So it was more. So the thing with survival instincts is, you know, we thought about this quite a bit, and it's it's an intellectual mode. It's like showing what she knows. That's why it goes away when she moves. Yeah. Right. Because it's like she's stopping and assessing, and oh, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do this. That's a this. You know. So that's. That's always good, um, but we wanted. We knew some players were like, oh, I hate that glowy stuff mode." So, we and actually it goes back to what you're saying about balancing the pillars. We ended up quite late in the process, adding the three layers of difficulty. And if you could speak to Michelle, <laughs> he was the guy, in, you know, the lead in charge of that effort. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't a walk in the park to do that late in the game <laughs> in the development. Um, it wasn't super late, you know, it was in the last third of the development, let's say, but. Um, but that really came out of playtests where people would play it and be like, oh, I'm... we would see people clicking that stick all the time because we did it ourselves when we were playing Rise. You're always clicking it because you you just want to not miss that, as you say, that collectible or whatever. Um, so what we did is we gave people the opportunity to turn it off by putting it on hard. And so whenever you put any of the three pillars on hard, uh, it turns off survival instincts for that pillar. So if you put traversal on hard, traversal stuff doesn't glow. If you put combat on hard, Enemies don't glow, no. etc. You put puzzle on hard, puzzle stuff doesn't glow. And she doesn't say VOs, which was another thing we we had a great challenge with working on Rise when we were making those challenge streams is, oh, she's saying too much, she's not saying enough. And really what we learned from players was like, let them have control 
over that. And so we're really happy of the feedback we've got about the per uh, pillar difficulty system where you can set all three to easy, all three to hard or a mix and match. Um, that way it mitigates some of that. Um, the other thing we did was we put specific skills in the skill tree related to the survival instincts. So if you didn't want it, you didn't. You just don't buy those skills, basically. Um, the third thing we did, which was interesting, was because it does it does go off when you move. And we, but we wanted we knew that when it was combat time, we wanted Lara to be absolutely badass because that's the thing <laughs> where she's in her element in this game. You know, she she fights a jaguar early on and then she becomes the jaguar, right? Yeah. And she's like. She's absolutely owning them. So we knew in combat we wanted her to be very um, powerful and omniscient about enemies. But survival instincts, by nature, when you move, it turns off. And what's interesting about Tomb Raider combat is you are always advantageous. It's always better for you to keep moving. Even, like, that was the principle of the original Tomb Raider games. You would circle strafe around the enemies, remember? Lock onto them. and 100%. So... So, you know, that core tenant followed all the way through to 2013's Tomb Raider, where you would not circle strafe, but you would sort of circle, dodge, scramble, roll around boxes. <laughs> if, you, if you remember any of those level centers. Oh, those were the days. Yeah, and, you're, and you would put arrows into fools, and that's what you would do. And so, so we wanted, when we said, okay, what is, that was another challenge, like what is stealth in Tomb Raider? Because stealth had only been ever what we call pre-combat up to Rise even in Rise, was that there's all the stuff you could do before it kicked off, and then you were you had to machine gun everyone to death. So we said, well, what is stealth? Stealth, and early on, you know, we're in the jungle, we're going to have cool Rambo stuff, like you can hide in the mud puddle and then come out and strangle them. And it didn't work because, you know, staying in one spot doesn't feel like Tomb Raider. It feels like Hitman or something, yeah. um, where you're rewarded for being static. Tomb Raider is all about movement. It's actually a little bit like, uh, Spider-Man, which is a franchise that I worked on at Beanox, right? It's like, he's the life acrobatic one. It's like, she's like that. She's the one that's zooming around, confusing the enemy. That's the feeling you get. That's the feeling you want of like owning them because you're acrobatic, right? She used to, she used to do cartwheels and backflips and stuff. Now yeah. she's jumping between the trees and she's scrambling between bushes and vine walls. And do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so all the systems we created for the stealth were based around movement and allowed you to have free, fluid movement. You know, take riffing on the bushes and the... Like, I think uh, Tomb Raider was the first franchise to do snapless cover, where you don't have to press a button to snap to it. She just automatically is in cover. Yeah. So we knew we had to continue that with the Vine Walls. You know, early on when we created that, we got feedback in playtest. Oh, you know, I played Deus Ex and I want to be able to snap to the Vine Wall or unsnap to the vine wall and we said, well that's not tomb raider tomb raider is you want to be able to fluidly move in it and then just move out of it and the game hopefully is doing what you want it to do most of the time and have that sort of fluid traversal experience you are someone who who values storytelling and character building and that's like an important part about games and you mentioned before that this story is maybe Lara realizing more of who she is and the entire arc has been about that about her becoming more of this tomb raider character but if you ever read reviews about a lot of video games where there's this sort of charismatic lead i don't have to name names that also murders everyone there there could initially be this dissonance between am i actually supposed to like this character do they realize that they've murdered a billion people and in in, in tomb raider it 
there's like an effort to make that make sense of who, that's who the character is. She's sort of this badass in, in, in the jungle who's taking out jaguars and, you know, skinning them and using them as that. But as you're going through this, were there discussions maybe for yourself internally or with the team about how far you want to take it in terms of the violence she inflicts, the number of people she kills so that you still want to be able to maybe not relate to her, but at least like her without her being a mass murderer? Well, I mean, we one thing we knew from going the stealth route is like just purely on the system side, there would be less enemies because it's not there would be less shooting gallery sections yeah. where there was waves and waves of dudes. So we knew that would generally make the combat feel more meaningful and brutal because there's less people. So yeah. when you know when there's when when you have a shooting gallery situation, which are, there was more on rise, and you were creating like giant fireball molotovs and things to burn three four guys and getting an achievement and all. like we we knew we were going more to stealth land and when you do stealth land it feels more up close and personal because you're doing takedowns and you're seeing knife the knife drive into their larynx yeah. or whatever so like that that's we knew that would happen i guess because it's more of a stealth game but you think about the other games like that you know they have a similar feeling i guess kill it's kill or be killed um and when she's in those situations if she doesn't do that and even as a player if you don't do that you just run out in the open you're going to become swiss cheese really quickly so so in the, the way we see it is that you know she's deadly in those situations because she has to be and otherwise she would be dead so it's 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 uh very similar to how it was in the first game uh sorry 2013 i should say um it's just that in that game there was more open combat and less stealth so i think the stealth uh lends it a more visceral murdery feeling but it doesn't maybe overall she kills less people in this game than the first two yeah but it feels like she kills more because it's more up close and personal i, I guess yeah well they're, they're definitely um, i don't think she's i don't think she's relishing it any more or less than she, like <laughs> she ever is i i don't know what's going on in her head maybe. yeah it but, definitely uh, feels more vicious not in like a yeah like she doesn't kill someone and go like well that was awesome like you don't get that for your dialogue <laughs> unless you go or into photo like mode that. and make a smile i mean then then it gets weird but, yeah um, well i had like a stretch where there was just i got behind three people like they noticed me and then i snuck behind them and just meleeed <laughs> the hell out of three people at the end i was like Oh, I feel a little gross after that. Like that one was yeah. a lot just happened right there, which I don't think is like a yeah. good or a bad thing. It's more of yeah. you're right. It, when it's when there's that stealth focus, mm-hmm. there's there's not just hey, there's fifty people, they're gonna be That's pouring right. out and you're throwing a grenade. You're right. You're not as removed from it as you yes. are when it's like a, a headshot in the distance. Yes. Right? It feels uh, personal. Totally. Uh actually one thing we we removed was some of the more gratuitous things. Um, we kept some of the finishes, but we actually removed some of the assault weapon finishes, like the shotgun. She used to do a shotgun finisher where she would jam the barrel under the guy's head and like separate his head from his body. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> yeah, and that's not in the game yeah. because we went, well, that's too brutal. So it's funny, like it's funny in that how a gun can be seen as you know not brutal, but like using a knife quickly and to cleanly kill someone you know i don't know like you know this is all personal uh, yeah view i guess but i i completely understand what you're saying and it's like the feeling right and so the feeling what we wanted was she's she has to become like a jungle predator to survive in the jungle that was the feeling we wanted and so if that sometimes feels more up close and personal and brutal then that's probably what would it be i mean if you watch first blood there's scenes in that where you're like oof 
you know, yeah. someone gets a spike through the leg and it, it's, it's, it's uh, more visceral and more brutal because you can feel it. You wince, you know? Yeah. Even if you've never experienced that, you could understand how terrible yeah. that would be. But even when all that stuff yeah. is happening, does your team still laugh when you have the like classic PS1 old school era Laura Croft skin on and then that stuff happens? I've seen some incredible <laughs> gifs, some incredible videos of her like coming out of the water, emerging, about to murder a dude, but she's just like polygonal and old school. Even now, is that something that you see and you're like, God damn, I can't believe we did this. This is awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, <laughs> the other favorite one is uh, I don't know if you saw. I think the guy from PC Gamer did a like a fake Instagram for Lara. Oh she, yeah, she, she's on a gap year, and then he's gone into photo mode and made her do a cheesy smile <laughs> with all these increasingly horrific things going on through. Like she's having a <laughs> like a, <laughs> like a, the horror, the horror. You know? Yeah, it's it's that's amazing i have kept it off because i want to experience this as intended but maybe as intended is actually with that skin and you just haven't told us (laughs) well it's the photo mode the photo mode lets you change her expression so what he's done is he's gone into photo mode and like and just put her smiling this very awkward like (laughs) smile (laughs) with uh, you know a spike through her head or something so it's that was we we had a good laugh at that yeah, it's it's nice having the comedy of that every once in a while with the game that is, you know, it, serious because it needs to be for what it's going for. But like, that's the kind of stuff that's just. Yeah, I mean, the tone of, of this this trilogy is survival action, right? Yeah. So it's more grounded. It's more what would you really be going through if these things were going on? Of course, reality, reality, it would be you'd probably be dead, <laughs> but, but it's more about believability, right? So if it's a little more believable, then hopefully you can emotionally empathize more with the character and get more involved in that way. Whereas the old games were more of an empowerment fantasy about, you know, I am untouchable. I can do backflips off a tiny pinhead, you know, like that's, which is also another type of awesome, but this is a different franchise with a different feeling. Do you prefer to work with characters who have already been defined to a certain extent like Lara Croft? Or do you like making games where you can kind of start from the ground up and take your own chances with that person? And again, this this whole trilogy was about not recreating, but seeing her arc to becoming what she eventually becomes. And you can, mm. I know you, you know, you have been working on it from the very start, but even in this game, you can kind of play with that. You could figure out what that means and make her whoever makes sense for the story. But Let's say you, I mean, again, you're on vacation. I'm not trying to stress you out. Let's say you're starting a new game tomorrow. God, like that's, yeah, I, I, that stresses me out thinking about it. But <laughs> do, would you want to start with a character at ground zero where you can make your own person from the start? Or has it been fun playing around with this character? Look, on, on the system side, because, you know, lead system side, <laughs> it's disadvantages and disadvantages. The advantage, of course, is much of the groundwork is done when you get to the third game or the second game when we're working on Rise. Um, disadvantages are uh, like all the buttons are gone (laughs) that's the the one that always you know is hilarious on the third game god damn it that button's used that button's used that button's can we use no that's gone oh my god you know so that forces you to think of elegant solutions Um, so you know uh, I don't know if I don't even know if people know this I think it's a tool tip in the menu but if you hold the d-pad there's a weapon wheel so if you tap the d-pad it works exactly as it did in the previous two games you can quick switch your weapons because it's an action game, you know, and you want to be able to get to that shotgun immediately when someone's close quarters, all of that stuff. But if you hold the D-pad, you can now use the right stick and review all of your crafted stuff because if you've been buying all the skills and everything, by the end of the game, you have like a complete weapon wheel full of alternate arrows and 
pist like flare bullets and all sorts of crazy stuff. And so that was a situation where we're like, well, we we don't want to use we we can't we have no other buttons to hold down for a weapon wheel. Plus, it would conflict with the D-pad. So we had to come up with an elegant solution of what if you just hold the D-pad, now it's a weapon wheel. It's the same thing for the herbal remedies. You know, um, we knew we wanted to do some sort of like she, the fantasy of being in the Amazon and she understands all the plants. And it was cool how in the previous game she could use the plants to heal. But healing was more of a reactive thing, which again, we're trying to show an arc that she's growing up. She's becoming more proactive. So healing is when I'm injured, I heal. It's a reaction to being injured yeah now we want to show okay well she's proactive she can actually ahead of time use plants to get an advantage in the combat in the puzzle etc so we wanted these like herbal remedies or whatever you want to call it uh so but we knew that's a sort of crafting and we're like oh my god all the buttons are gone you know like <laughs> left uh, right trigger is craft primary ammo and right bumper is craft secondary ammo and left bumper is heal ah so we went through so many different iterations on like wheels and things and in the end we came across like hey just hold down that left bumper and now your face buttons you just tap them and they do all the things that you you know a is heal because it's easier for your thumb to get to so these are these are the sorts of challenges um that you face when you're on the third game where like from a system side a lot of things are established and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because people also know those things uh, so when they come into play shadow you don't want to completely control change the controls on them because they'll be like what the hell is this yeah. this doesn't play like Tomb Raider at all and there's certain reasons you know we worked on rise we worked with the guys at crystal and we know there's certain reasons why they did things like that so i was able to like you know, chat with the guys at Crystal when we were making these sorts of decisions and say, hey, why did you guys, did you guys ever think about doing a wheel? You know, did you guys ever think about expanding the healing for the plants? And of course, the, as is always the case with these things, a lot of times the answer is yes, but we ran out of time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so like creatively, we've, you know, we have a great relationship with Crystal. Um, uh, yeah, we like, I work really close with, the, with them on Rise. And so a lot of, the time there was a lot of shared they were like oh you guys are so lucky you'll get to do that on the third one you know what i mean yeah, like there's totally. there's a, lo a lot of that that comes from oh you guys will finally be able to fin you do full underwater for example like bring that experience or or the um crafting of the herbs rather than just one recipe so all that sort of stuff or a weapon wheel you know a lot of times it's like the logical next step and of course you know you or the designers or whatever think you're the first person to come up with it but very often like the previous designers on the previous game were like oh yes yeah we had some ideas around that but you know we had to roll things up get it out and it made sense for the game at that time to be like this and it's cool yes you should go for that it was still a collaboration in a lot of ways because we really really like honored we really really love what they did on, on the first two and we really wanted to make sure that everything we did felt like an organic extension of what they did for example the repelling comes from the grapple axe you know that wasn't always the case when we started prototyping it, it was like oh she'll have a new tool or something blah 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 I'm like why are we doing this she has a tool with a rope on it it's you know <laughs> like why it should be from her axe you know very quickly we figured okay no 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 it should all be it should feel like i've actually seen some reviews and it's like it's really great when some reviews say oh and the grapple axe repelling makes a return from rise and they get it wrong because then I'm like, yes, it feels. <laughs> that means that it feels like it was always meant to be like that. <laughs> it's so good sometimes to see those mistakes because that means people 
feel like, oh yeah, that was always there, right? Like that swimming was always there on the, I remember doing that on Rise, the, the swinging and the wall running and all of that. It's like, no. <laughs> like, that's the <laughs> thing. It's just been long enough that there were certain moments where I was like, that's always been there, right? But if you're able to integrate that in so naturally that it becomes a, oh, well, this has always been a part of this Tomb Raider series, right? That means you're doing something right. And that has to be a huge advantage yeah. for you just in terms of having a good relationship with Crystal. So you can go back and be like, hey, did you try this? And maybe there's yeah. probably two answers where it's like, well, it's actually probably three. Uh, well, because they're creating content as well for this one. As I said, it's a role reversal. Yeah. So that will give us feedback like, hey, that new system that you've got, it's cool. But if you thought about this, so it was the same. It was a role reversal on what we did with them on the last one where they would bring in these systems like the broadhead arrow or the grapple axe. And we would say, hey, that's cool. But if you thought about this, because we were trying to make this level, we're trying to make this crazy like orrery spinning around puzzle thing and have you thought about if the grapplex could do this like oh yeah okay <laughs> so it's, it's like you know it's payback time in a way for yeah. them <laughs> like no that's the that's the stupid way to say it but you know what i mean in a positive a, way positive in a positive way. we're constantly pushing each other to and teasing each other about oh you, you know you did a tomb with that many skulls in it okay watch this you know like there's, a, there's a friendly rivalry let's say like that's that we really we had so much fun working on rise and shadow with them um in those different capacities um you know it was really not like uh, us versus them at all it was the, it was the opposite it was a really really awesome experience yeah and i doubt you've had too much time to be able to kind of sit back and reflect because like you said you didn't know no real role in the first game you had a role in the second game and this one a much bigger role but now that you're on vacation, you're away from, from Tomb Raider for a bit, you can, you can look at this series. Maybe certain you know members of the community will remember it for very specific reasons, something that stands out about the trilogy. But for you personally, being so close to it, what's the thing mm. that you're going to be most proud of looking back maybe five, ten years from now and looking at this and being like, man, that was, I'm happy we're able to do this. Wow, that's a big question. Um I mean, Shadow's the most fresh in my mind. I think there's different things on each of the two games for different reasons. So, and there's specific things that are more personal to me. So I'll just mention those. Um, so this does not represent the views of Idos Monica, but, <laughs> but it's like personally, there was a moment in Rise. So the one from Rise, I would say, would be, uh, did you play Rise? Yes. So there was a ship in the ice. Mm that that was actually meant to be like the fifth challenge tomb that we created in the game. So it was the fifth one we created. And by that time we were sort of like, um, you know, more of a well-oiled machine than when we started out making the challenge tombs on the project, we learned a lot from our mistakes. You know, when you get to the fifth one, you're like, okay, we can do this pretty cool. Um, and so that was like when we felt we reached a point where we could deliver on, you know, a memorable moment and a cool puzzle and all that stuff. And ironically, it was meant to be like the final tomb in the game. So it was a super complex puzzle originally. That's why we picked the ship, you know, and there was all this verticality and seesaw beams and all this crazy stuff. And a lot of that ended up getting cut out because when Crystal saw it, they're like, oh, that's so cool. Let's put it on the main path as the first tomb. <laughs> and yeah. we're like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> so then we took the puzzle and we, you know, slimmed it down to its bare essentials. So we still kept the fantasy. But that tomb, like completing that tomb, you know, we did it. There was, I don't think we, you know, went overtime or anything on it. We did it in time. Um, we had a, it was, went relatively smoothly uh, and people really loved it. So that was something that really stuck out from Rise was that memorable moment of making that ice ship thing with the small group 
within the team at Montreal. The team was much bigger. But we had a small team working on challenge teams. And that's something that stuck out for me as memorable. Um, I think also it's one of the first concepts we created and we looked at the concept art and went, oh, that's going to be really hard. Let's not do that as the first one. <laughs> like, let's use that as our cookie reward if we think we've got to a point where we can do something like that later. And then we thought we did and we gave it a shot. Well, I remember really appreciating it. So that's, it, it stands <laughs> out in my mind. So yeah, that's mission accomplished. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was good. And then on Shadow, hmm. Um, I mean, just it, Shadow is such a different experience because, you know, being the lead studio, there's so much more, like you say, pressure on yourselves to not screw it up and everything. So uh, it's a different role completely from creating content to going to managing systems design. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned it before, it's a small thing, but one of the things I'm I'm personally rem- remembering fondly was the, the herbal uh, remedy system is because it was, it was something that wasn't always was something that we thought of really early on and then it sort of stayed around for a while and then we realized no this is really cool we should have it in the game uh and it wasn't always a given but we really like worked on it to get it to a point where it felt useful and people wanted to use it and when they used it they liked it and that so that just having that thing there on a small scale on a big scale it's got to be how to do combat in the jungle that was a huge challenge that took you know, there was multiple iterations of that that took the entire project, basically, you know, and rewriting a lot of the AI so that you can disappear and they can search for you and all of these things. That's just an immense amount of work. So that's that's a huge achievement. So looking back on that, you know, ironically, it's like now there's the perfect foundation <laughs> for Tomb Raider. Oh, it's the third <laughs> game of the trilogy. But, but, you know, that said, there's DLC coming out. Uh, I just want to remind you, there's seven DLCs. Oh, my God. Seven? Yeah, it's crazy. Every month there's a DLC coming out, and it's so cool for me being on vacation. I can experience these as a as a player. Oh wow! And not involved. Like a lot of my friends are back at IDOS, you know, working tirelessly to bring these DLCs out. Um, it's not a separate team. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like there's a team in somewhere else making these DLC. No, no, no. These are the guys and girls that made Shadow of the Tomb Raider. They're still making Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I'm very lucky to be on holiday. I, I you know, no doubt about it. But I'm now really looking forward to playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider as a consumer and playing these seven DLCs. And they're so cool because each one, it's, it's all been announced. I'm not giving any spoilers, but each one has like a, a mission and a tomb in it. Each one has a tomb. Oh my God. And you can, you can play most of them as co-op which is insane. So you can actually, for the first time ever in Tomb Raider, you can co-op a tomb puzzle. I had I did not know this was even happening. Well, here, let's close on this. Let me let me give you the floor on this last yeah. thing. Uh yeah. let's talk about what's what what's the plan? What's the release schedule? Like what are some of the names for the DLC that's coming out? I'm not sure if you're a social media person, but where can people find you on social media? Uh right. So <laughs> yeah, um just to well, just to roll it up, like uh the previous question, like the definitely the combat in the jungle was a huge thing that I'm very proud of and what that led me on to the cha- the the DLC stuff because you will have more combat in the DLC, obviously. Mm. Um but uh yeah, so DLC wise, this is not um there's more qualified people to speak about it than me, but I know what was what's been announced and I know what, you know, the guys and girls are working on at IDOS. So there's there's it's one a month, basically, um, from memory. And I think the first one comes out next month. 
Um, and what's cool about it is, uh, yeah, you for most of each 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 DLC is a mission. So, and this was the other thing that was interesting, really quickly about bringing the social experience is previously on Tomb Raider, previously on Tomb Raider, <laughs> you would go to a <laughs> you would go to a challenge tomb, and it was just like Lara finding the tomb and reading some documents, and it was awesome because you would get the story of the tomb, but you didn't. It never really felt connected to the hub, like there was like the hub uh, area with maybe one or two people in it in Rise. So what what having a social experience gave us is like no, this place is an actual place for them, and you know they talk about it as the blah 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 blah, and so now and it also drove the player out from that central hub out into the exploration space. So it served a gameplay purpose, but it also served to enrich the experience because it wasn't just it wasn't just a spinning. Uh, gauntlet of death, right? It's now the warrior's trial that the warriors would pass, and the guy taunts you about it outside that spiky hole in Paititi. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Exactly. Like, yeah, so that's totally something really cool for us, having worked on challenge teams and stuff on Rise and making an ice ship and going, that's really cool, and it's the thing you find after fighting the bear, and it's just sort of there, right? And no one's talking about it, though. It doesn't, it doesn't really exist in the space in a way, but what we're able to bring on shadow was like each one of these places has a contextualization. Like that's the temple where they do the ceremony with the light mirrors, you know, yeah. and that's, that's the one you can see in the hub on the cliff. And it's like, Oh, that's so cool. So that's something we really geeked out about. when we were making Tomb Raider. <laughs> um, so yes, what's going to happen is these seven DLCs, each one has a tomb and each one, they're going to be geeking out at work about that exact same thing. Like, where is it in the hub? Is it in Paititi? Is it in Kowakiaku? Is it in uh, the mission of San Juan? You know, and how does it relate to the stories of the people? And there'll be people, there'll be like a mission sort of wrapper side mission thing around it. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I'm, I'm really excited. And, you know, once that all comes together, all seven side missions, the Shadow of the Tomb Raider will be even more awesome. Yeah, that's a massive <laughs> game at that point. Yeah, because it goes into the, like, you can find them as you're playing the game. It's not just through a menu. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so it's part. If you let's say in seven months' time, you were playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider for the first time, there would be sixteen challenge tombs in the game, not nine. Oh my god! You'd essentially have because to just take like three weeks off of work to finish this. <laughs> but that's what's so amazing about it is just each time the DLC comes in, it's enriching the experience. And the reason why we wanted to do that is like we built, we spent so much time building and realizing these hubs, and they're bigger and more complex than ever before and they have the social element as well so they feel more alive and so it's like well when, when it came to dlc do we really want to create things just in a little menu you know what i mean yeah. like we, you have lots of cool ideas that would be cool but they're not actually connected to the hubs and so what what i'm super excited about is like i just load up the game i go back in the hub and now there's oh there's someone new here i didn't know about before that is got a quest for me and that's going to send me off on a whole new adventure so that's that's going to be awesome yeah the organic nature of that i think is what's important because you, like you said when it's just a menu it feels like is this really a part of the world but when you're establishing it as new characters who are telling you hey go over here or even existing characters with new quests i think that's much more interesting well the menu i mean the menu thing has its advantages as well like i loved blood ties um the stuff that the crystal did on rise of the Tomb oh, yeah. where you 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 went around the mansion and you got some of her past and then there was a crazy zombie mode. So like <laughs> blood ties was awesome, but it just made sense for us to feature in this way because that, you know, this is, 
the Tomb Raider that's about these places, Paititi and Kawakuku, and the people that she meets there and the stories they have to tell. This is this is the essence of Shadow of the Tomb Raider. So we wanted to make sure that the DLC reflected that. All right. Perfect. Heath, thanks so much for doing this. I, I've been fortunate enough now to talk to people who have just finished these massive projects and they're now on vacation enjoying life and trying to figure out what do I do with this newfound free time and, and headspace <laughs> that's away from the games. I really enjoyed the game. Uh, it, 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 it was cool to you know meet and talk to you, talk about all these crazy things that have gotten in the game. It's super fun to play and I can't wait for all this DLC. We will play them in parallel because both of us will be surprised as we're going through it. Hey, maybe we can co-op. It. Oh, we should do this. Oh man, yeah. this is a new Twitch idea. And then I can, yeah, and then I can give you uh, like tidbits. Oh, this is the Sigma greatest. Tidbits. All right, well, you know what? I'll I will keep in <laughs> I'm contact. I'm about to receive a phone call from Idos Montreal saying Heath, you will not give away any secrets. <laughs> That's the one thing that'll somehow get us in trouble is like doing way too many secrets out on Twitch when we're talking. <laughs> Well, no, I'm really excited. That's, that's cool. Um, I'm, I've been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to to get to chat to you today about all this this stuff because you know we you do um, work on these games for a long time in secrecy and it's always just a absolute privilege to be able to talk to people about what we've been doing and really just hope people enjoy it because that's the main thing we're making is <laughs> we're making sometimes you lose sight of that but you know we're making an entertainment product we hope people really enjoy it and we feel like we're you know, uh, delivering the fantasy of the ultimate um, Tomb Raider game, the third one in the trilogy where she's become the Tomb Raider. We hope people are feeling it, they're enjoying it, they enjoy the DLC, and that it was all worth it. And normally at this point is where I say, can't, we, can't wait to see what comes next. But in this case, uh, just mm-hmm. go, go take a nap. Go rest up. Well, I'm not even worried. Like, let the rest of the team do the DLC. You go take a nap. Honestly, what's next is the DLC, and I'm super pumped for it. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.